Well, it's good to be back with you. We, uh, Elsie and I are glad to be home and uh, enjoying your company again. Uh, thanks for being here. We are winding up a series today, Hills That We Die On. I can't answer for you. I do not know what hills you're willing to die on. Just let me share a couple of mine with you. By the way, can I tell you this? The older I grow, the fewer hills I'm willing to die on. But the hills I am willing to die on are more ardent in my heart than ever before. One of those hills is my family. Loving, helping, protecting, being with family. That's a hill worth dying on. Even more importantly, my faith. I believe with all my heart what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes this, he said, There is one body, now that's the church, and one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I believe that that one God had one Son who came to this world for the distinct purpose of becoming our Savior, who died for our sins on the cross, who was buried, who arose on the third day, and who is coming again. I believe that with all my heart. And on that hill, I would willingly die. Coming again. I love the perspectives and the sincere hearts of our kids uh, in that video. And you say, well, were they right? Maybe. You know, the Bible is silent on so much of heaven. We speculate, we dream, we anticipate, but we don't know exactly what all is involved in heaven. Uh, I learned something new from my granddaughter, Fluffy. Who doesn't like Fluffy? I mean, what a beautiful kind of warm picture of this place where we'll spend eternity. Now, if you think all of our ideas about heaven are kind of unique, well, you just wait till you turn to the second coming, the prophecies about end times and what's going to happen in the future. Let me tell you, folks, that's all over the map. Everybody has some kind of distinct idea of what's going to happen at the end of time. Now, I realize some of you here this morning have done a lot of study into this area, and so this may, this may feel a little bit more elementary to you. Some of you are kind of still figuring out whether or not you even want to call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, and so some of this is going to say, whoa, that is just way out there on the edge. So I'm going to try and strike a happy medium this morning, give you a little bit of background before we take a look at the hill worth dying on here. Here's some terms that when you're talking to somebody about end times that are, that are naturally going to come up. One of those is the word millennium. That's a thousand year period, whether it's literal or figurative, that describes uh, the reign of Christ. Uh, there's the tribulation. Near the very end of time, there's a seven year period where there'll be a lot of suffering for the saints and, and there will be victory for Satan. Rapture. Uh, now, the word rapture does not appear in the Bible, but it describes that time when Jesus comes and the dead in Christ are raised and their bodies uh, are renewed, and we who are still alive at his coming will caught, be caught up in the air with him and transformed momentarily. Antichrist, man of lawlessness, it's either a person or a philosophy or an ideology that will precede the return of Christ. Armageddon that we find in Re Re Revelation chapter 16 describes the last great battle between the forces of evil and the power and the goodness of God. It is Satan's last gasp effort to overthrow the Lord. Judgment, that event where we will come before God who 
will judge us not based on some arbitrary standard, but based on the choices that we have made in this life. God doesn't just randomly say, you get to go, you don't. It's based on our choices in this life. And so after the judgment, we in our newly resurrected bodies enter heaven forever. Now, in light of all those thoughts, you can subscribe to one of several interpretations, and it all seems to center around this millennial reign. Is it really a literal thousand years? Is it just symbolic thousand years? You can be a premillennial. That's viewing the fact that the Christians are taken out of this world before the tribulation, before the thousand years, all that kind of stuff. The, the pre's see that we're gone before all the bad stuff happens. Postmillennial means that there is a golden thousand years toward the end of time, and when it gets to the best, that's when Christ returns. Amillennial sees it as a figurative period, that this is a thousand years, but that just describes a perfect period. And that thousand years began at the resurrection of Christ and will culminate at the second coming when our bodies are raised, judgment will take place and will enter heaven. Preterism is that view that all of the end-time prophecy that we find in the Bible was fulfilled in 70 A.D. at the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. When Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until these things are fulfilled, is where we find reason to believe that some of that is also true. So there you have it. Which perspective, which interpretation is the hill worth dying on? Well, here's the rub, folks. <laughs> Each of these understandings is based on an interpretation of Scripture. Each holds value and makes sense in some form or fashion, and each has issues that are hard to resolve and reconcile. What am I? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure. I lean toward amillennialism, thinking that it's a symbolic period of time. Uh, I, I believe that some of the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But I also believe that the church is here to the very end. I think God only made one soul-saving institution. So I think we're here to the bitter end, through the tribulation, through the tough time, to the very time that Jesus comes back. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping the pre's are right. I'm hoping the premillennialist is right and we get chucked out of this world before any of the bad stuff happens. That would be the good news. So what am I? I'm a pro-millennialist. I'm for it. <laughs> however, however God works out the details, however it comes together, whatever God's plan is, I'm for it. Now, I don't mean that as a cop-out this morning. I just don't want to get locked into some tunnel vision that keeps me from seeing the evidence of when it really happens. Let, let me explain it this way. Before his first coming, the Old Testament contained prophecies about the arrival of the Messiah. Some Bible scholars say there are 300 prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Others say, well, no, those overlap so much that there are only 44 distinct prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. That's still a lot. 44 distinct pictures of who he will be and what he'll look like. In their book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman discussed the statistical improbability, not of 300, not of 44, but of only eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming to pass in the lifetime of Jesus. Do you know, do you know what the statistical improbability is of that? One in one followed by 17 zeros. Now, I have no, I have no idea what number you call that. 
But they go on in their book to describe mathematically how that is. And, and, and some of you have heard this picture before, but some of you may not have. It's the equivalent of covering the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, marking one silver dollar, blindfolding a person, mixing up all the silver dollars, sending that person in, and they get to pick up one silver dollar whenever, wherever they want to. The odds of them picking up that single silver dollar are the odds of just eight of these prophecies coming true in one man's lifetime. Now, I say all that to remind you that the Jewish scholars of that day and time were brilliant people. They searched diligently the scriptures to try and figure out when the Messiah would come and what he would be like. And I'm here to tell you that they were ill-equipped when Jesus showed up on the scene. It should have been easy. But they didn't recognize him. Why? Because based on scripture, they had interpreted his coming as a physical coming. That he would be part of a royal line. That he would be a king with an earthly kingdom. That he would raise up an army, overthrow Rome, and that the area of Judea and Israel would once again be a free nation. And so, when Jesus came born of Mary, growing up in a carpenter's house, being raised in lowly Nazareth, Becoming a simple rabbi. People said, that can't be him. That can't be him. So if those who so carefully studied the scripture before his first coming missed it, then isn't it possible that we who study today so diligently might not get it right? I mean, folks, there are brilliant minds, far smarter than I will ever be in several lifetimes, who have been studying this ever since the church began, and we still cannot agree on what the conclusion will be. It's not anybody's intention to get it wrong, but the prophecies of his return are in some way even more ambiguous than his first coming. So I ask you again, is there a hill worth dying on here? And my answer is, there certainly is, but it just won't necessarily involve the how or the when. After all, remember what Jesus said in Matthew. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, when you add all this together, most of us just want to throw up our hands in frustration over it all. It's this ancient future thing. It's, it's from long ago and far away and almost has this kind of Star Wars feel to it. Like, who can, who can even know what this is like? So let me take you to one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture so that maybe we can find that hill worth dying on. 1 Thessalonians 4. Ready? Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So what jumps out of this passage that we need to remember? Let me give it to you briefly this morning. 
Walk by faith. This is a walk of faith. When it happens, I think it will leave us breathless. Regardless of what you think of, when it comes that day, I think we'll just stand there slack-jawed. Wow. This is what he had planned. You see, the whole concept of his return exceeds the capacity of my mind to understand, let alone be able to explain it. So, I take it by faith. Not blind faith, but faith that is based on his word and his promise, his example, and the past testimony of all of the prophecies that have been fulfilled in him already. So, folks, make it a walk of faith. I like walking, honestly. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite exercises. Elsie and I like to, to walk together in the evenings when we get a chance. But some walks in my life, like what I expect that moment will be, have left me breathless. Walking each of my daughters to her kindergarten class on that very first day wasn't too hard, but turning around and walking away that one left me breathless. I walked her into the BMV so she could apply for her driver's license. Any breath I had left after that walk, I spent praying for safety on the roads. <laughs> then I walked her to the door on her first date. Trust me, I wanted to walk a lot further that evening, but I stopped at the threshold. I walked the last load of her college stuff to her dorm room the last load I took slowly because I knew when I set that down in the room and turned and walked out, things would never quite be the same again. A few years later, I breathlessly walked her down the aisle, gave her to another man who was walking with her every step of the way. And today, I'm taking walks with my grandchildren, which leave me breathless every time. There's something about walking by faith because you see that day when I walked our girls to their kindergarten classes. It was a walk of faith. I had no idea what the future would hold. And through all the ups and through all the downs, it has been a glorious walk. As a matter of fact, from the day I learned I was going to be a father, I knew I'd be a father for the rest of my life. It's been a walk of faith. Nobody knows what tomorrow is going to hold. We walk by faith every day of our lives with our families, with our careers, with our health, and with so much more. So why then? Tell me, why then is it so difficult for us to walk by faith in the promise of the one who came the first time according to all of the prophecies? Why do we think we have to have all the answers before we can trust that he's coming again? Here's the second thing. Be encouraged. This passage was not to create fear or guilt or grief. It was to inspire anticipation and hope. And such anticipation is based and always has been on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the foundation of our faith. And notice also that those of us who are alive at his return will not experience the transformation of life before those who have been buried. I think this is pretty exciting. Now, don't get hung up on that passage when it says asleep in the Lord. That's just a euphemism. Jesus used that when he talked about Lazarus. He's asleep. We have 96, at least 96 English euphemisms for death. I hardly ever say, hear anybody say, he died, she died. What I hear people say is, he passed away. She was called home. You see, we try to soften that concept. 
But make no mistake about it, you are not in some kind of period of suspended animation. When you die, you are very much aware. The man in the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16 when he died knew he was in misery. He still had feelings. He still had memory. He was aware of everything that was going on around him and what had happened to him in the past. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross... Today, not some future event, not after a period of suspended animation, today you will be with me in paradise. So these words come as encouragement. You're not asleep when you die. You're at home with the Lord. Now, I don't think we're quite home to heaven yet. I think we're in this paradise, but that's a discussion for another day. The Lord will descend with a shout and with the trumpet blast. How that will transpire, I do not know, but every eye will see him, every knee will bow before him, and we will be on our way home. Now, when's that going to happen? Again, we don't know. Paul adds his admonition to the words of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Like a thief in the night. Not sneaky. Just unannounced. You will not get a text or an email or an Instagram photo of what the thief plans to do. He just shows up and hopes that you're not home. So Jesus will come, perhaps when we least expect it. An expectant mother knows she's going to have a baby. She just doesn't know the day or the hour. Not even the doctor knows that. That's between God and the baby. The anticipation is he's coming. So just hang on. Here's the summary. I've learned through the years that Anonymous writes some pretty good stuff. So I, I think this Anonymous quote um, kind of sums that whole confusion up. Here it goes. Everything will work out in the end. If it's not working out, it's not the end. <laughs> all right? So if it doesn't seem like this is happening the way it should, it probably isn't happening at all. Here's the last one and the most important one, bar none. It's this, be ready. This is a hill worth dying on. Be ready. Can you name the deadliest fire in American history? The one that claimed the most lives? It happened on October the 8th, 1871 in Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Over a thousand people in northern Wisconsin perished in that fire along with several surrounding communities to Peshtigo. They say that the flame was so intense and jumping from tree to tree in the forests around the community that it, the flames were jumping faster than people could outrun them. The whole place was just destroyed to ashes. And you say, well, I, I've never heard about Peshtigo, Wisconsin. There's a reason for that. Ironically, that fire was the same night as the great Chicago fire. And everybody in America was talking about the great Chicago fire. 250 people died in that fire. Tragic loss, but one quarter of the number that died in Peshtigo. Here's my point. I want to make sure that we don't get so hung up on figuring out the whens and the hows and the whats. And we miss the who. Jesus is coming back and I have to be ready. You have to be ready. 
Now, if you've been wandering through the land of Nod this morning, come back to me. I'm winding this thing. I'm getting ready to land the plane, all right? And I don't want you to miss this stuff, okay? Here's, here's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning, and that is you need to be ready. I need to be ready spiritually when he comes. These and other scriptures are here to help us prepare. One does not need to know the answer to every question to know what to expect. I do not need to know the exact speed of the earth's rotation to anticipate a sunrise tomorrow morning. I do not need to know the exact pressure created by the water tower to understand and expect that when I turn on my faucet, there will be water. I do not know, need to know the exact moment when he comes to anticipate that he is coming again to keep his promise. The most important questions I can answer today are about my readiness for his return. Is he the Lord of my heart and mind? Is he my top priority? Have I surrendered my life totally to him? Have my sins been forgiven by his sacrifice? Have I pledged my soul's allegiance to him as the way, the truth, and the life? If I can't answer those questions in the affirmative, I am not ready, and you aren't either. Here is the second, the opposite side of the same coin, equally important. He will return, and I must help others become spiritually prepared. When Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives 40 days after his resurrection, the apostles watched dumbfounded, and this is what we read in Acts chapter 1. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. His last words to them right before that moment was, you're going to be my witnesses everywhere. Go with the gospel and prepare other people to be my disciples. I got a question for you. Think about the circle of your friends and family and acquaintances. Is there anybody in that group that you would say, oh, I hope he doesn't get to go home to heaven. I'd just soon he'd stay behind. Of course not. I don't know anybody that I wouldn't want to go home to heaven and to miss what God has prepared for them. Are we truly helping people get ready. Are we genuinely people helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers to that end? Are we really living as everyday missionaries? Because you see, that is our reason for being here. And I'll tell you this too. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I'd like to do that. I just don't know how to do that. All right, grab a root and hang on. We're going to do all that in September. So I want you to be here in September because we're going to talk about how we can help others get ready. I always thought it would be wonderful to be alive at the second coming of Christ. <laughs> Miss the whole death thing, you know, and just go whoop, up and, and away. I, I, I really hope I'm alive at his coming. Paul said, we'll be changed in the blink of an eye. Faster than I can blink my eyes, we'll be changed. 
I usually carry several things in my pockets. I've got car keys. I uh, have usually some, some money, some change in my pocket. I've got credit cards and a wallet, and, and I've got a cell phone that I, that I carry with me. It's got all kinds of personal information and great pictures of family and, and events on the phone. I always carry a pocket knife with me. There's, there's things in my pockets that sort of relate my life. I, I guess you could say in some ways... You, you, in a sad way, we can sum up our lives by the things that we carry in our pockets or purses or something. But on that day when Jesus comes back, he's going to change us in the twinkling of an eye. And all of a sudden, we're going to be caught up in the air with him. And I'll tell you what I'm not going to be doing. I'm not going to be reaching for my pockets to see what's left. Because none of that stuff is going. And I won't care. But I will be scanning the sky, looking for faces of people I love. Are they too on their way home? The older I grow, the more hopeful and encouraging this becomes. I cannot wait for the day. Oh, won't it be an exciting one? One of my favorite moments is when Elsie and I are going to go over and see the grandkids. And uh, they kind of know the general time when we're coming, but they don't know the specific time. And we'll pull up in the driveway and one or two or three things will be happening. They'll be standing at the storm door with those little faces pressed up against the glass watching. Or they'll be out in the driveway waiting for us to get there. And we'll pull into the driveway and they start to jump and they begin to smile and we get out of the car and they come running and they throw their arms around us. I, I got to tell you, there is nothing. There is nothing in this world like being loved by a child. I think that is the picture that Jesus is looking for when he comes. That we, his children, will be watching. And that when he comes, we'll begin to jump and smile. And we'll run to fall at his feet and proclaim him Lord of Lords and King of Kings forever. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.